Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 49. There are eight college basketball teams still playing, and one of them is the Wisconsin Badgers. Four NIT teams, four NCAA tournament teams. The final four is set, and just like we all thought, it's two five seeds, a four seed, and a nine seed. We'll talk about another wild weekend in the tournament. Bucks have a massive week. This is not the playoffs, obviously, yet, but it's close. This is that kind of a week where you're ramping up toward the playoffs. Several big games on the horizon, specifically Thursday and Sunday, but they've got to take care of business early in the week as well after splitting their West Coast trip this past weekend. We'll break that down. And as promised, Brewer Baseball is on the way on Thursday. We'll do some futures bets, some prop bets for the Brewers, talk about their upcoming season, and we'll discuss real quick some baseball movie stuff. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, and a tentacle ball throws it down! Swinging fly ball in the right center, Broxton is there, and they're the champions! They have done it! It's been a 50-year journey, Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight! The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions! Boy, didn't that teaser make you want to stick around? We'll break down some baseball movie stuff. Oh, and that's a hook. I'll wait through the six-minute commercial break for that one, John. That's a good teaser. I never was good at teasing breaks. There's some stuff. We're going we're gonna to do some stuff and some things. Maybe we're, we've got more stuff than things. It's like importing, exporting. Focus on the importing. Focus on the stuff and not the things. We do every week. I've been doing the morning show on B93 now for, God, 14 years. I'm 14 years into a two-year plan. B93. I'm not sad about that. It just is what it is. And at the beginning of my time on the B93 Morning Show, we've always done a trivia segment right before 7 o'clock. Trivia that you can Google in seconds. It was a much more difficult segment in 1990s radio when you didn't have access to everything on your phone and you actually had to think about a answer to a question. I have told people during that segment, I'm trusting that everybody is just not Googling. I'm trusting that everybody is on the honor system for the trivia segment every day before 7. But every week of opening week, whenever opening day lands, we do a week's worth of baseball movie trivia. I am certain now since we've been doing it for 12 years or 11 years, the first year I decided to do this, I thought, oh, that's a original idea for this show, a unique idea perhaps, and then we did it again the next year, and the next year, the next year, and I'm sure we're repeating questions at this point. But we started this morning with Field of Dreams movie trivia, which in my opinion, and a part of this is my personal connection when I was a kid to that movie, because this was one of those movies, and 80s and 90s kids will relate to this, that my parents taped off of TV. That used to be a thing where if there was a Saturday night movie of the week, I know we were just talking about Blockbuster and all that stuff on Friday's pod. But that used to be a thing where if there was a movie coming up that you wanted to see and didn't want to buy it, you would put a blank cassette tape in and you'd record it off of TV. And for kids like me in the Sheboygan area, 
I did not get cable or we did not get cable as a household until I was probably in high school. So for most of my youth, the only channels that were not the over-the-air network channels were Channel 18 and Channel 24 in Milwaukee. And every once in a while, they'd have a pretty good movie on. And Field of Dreams was one of them. My parents taped it off of Channel 18 probably in 1990 or 1991. And I watched it a billion times because it was just sitting in the cassette tape drawer. And I liked baseball and I liked the movie. And it was just there. And I watched it all the time. I could even tell you, and of course you fast forward through the commercials, but I could probably tell you if you just loaded that videotape up, which still may be at their house. I have no idea. If you just put that in, I could probably tell you some of the commercials. I watched it so many times, I knew what commercials I was fast forwarding through in that movie. But because of that personal connection... I would maybe put that number one for me, but there are so many good baseball movies, and that's kind of a part of the discussion this morning. What would you put as the number one, as your own personal number one? It is interesting to me, in the realm of sports movies, what are some of the best football movies? I couldn't even tell you. Best football movies. North Dallas 40? Friday Night Lights? Remember the Titans. Okay, remember the Titans, Varsity Blues, Rudy. But when you look at sports movies, baseball sports movies, thats they are the best, right? Where would you put in basketball Hoosiers? They all have good sports movies, but the baseball sports movies, when you start to list the best baseball movies, it's an extensive list. Field of Dreams, Major League, Bull Durham, A League of Their Own. I loved Rookie of the Year, even though it's about the Cubs. There are so many great baseball movies. I would put Field of Dreams as my number one just because of that connection to my childhood. But Major League with Euchre, probably number two. Bull Durham, number three. I don't know, a league of their own and rookie of the year. Little Big League was a good one, too. But Field of Dreams, because of that taped movie that I watched literally, I mean, I've probably literally seen it 200 times in my lifetime. There was a summer there where I really started to get what baseball was and love the baseball movies. There was a summer vacation probably in second or third grade where I legitimately watched that movie every single day during summer vacation, or almost every day, which allows me to segue just beautifully into this before we get into different different You're stuff. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. Hated that guy, by the way, in Field of Dreams. The guy that was trying to get him to sell the farm hated that guy. This speech. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Goosebumps. Every single time, goosebumps when that clip plays. How do we think Terrence Mann would have handled the pitch clock? Where would he have been? Where would he have been? Where would Shoeless Joe Jackson have been on the pitch clock? Remember that movie at the beginning, the first time Ray Liotta, Shoeless Joe Jackson, comes out of the cornfield and he's looking at the lights and they talk about how it ruined baseball, how his opinion was it ruined baseball because he couldn't see the ball that well. How do you think they'd feel about the pitch clock? Well, we were having a mini discussion about that this morning. We did feel the dreams this morning. It's a Monday. I'll probably hop into Major League. You got to do Major League, Bull Durham, and then it gets a little bit more. Le- you got to do a league of their own, and I have to do Rookie of the Year. Bad News Bears, there's so many good ones. All right, now I know we're going to go baseball, basketball, basketball, baseball. It would make more sense to jump right into the Brewer conversation here, but if it made sense, it wouldn't be this podcast. Well, we will talk about college hoops over the weekend. 
What a weekend. Just, it's, this tournament is the best. And why it's the best is because you look back to last year, you can never get a beat on it. Last year's Final Four, it was the bluest of the Blue Bloods. And I would throw Villanova into that Blue Blood because they were in the Final Four last year, at least recently in the last 20-ish years. I would throw them in that Blue Blood category where it feels like they're always in the Elite Eight or the Final Four. They've won a couple of national championships. Well, last year, it was Villanova, Kansas, Duke, and North Carolina. I guess if you flipped out, if you put Kentucky in there instead of Nova, then then you would have had the bluest of the blue blood. But those were blue blood schools, and it was very entertaining. It was great. You had Duke, North Carolina in the Final Four. This year could not be more different. You have in the Final Four Florida Atlantic, who was awesome in, con- in Conference USA this year, 31-3 and record. A lot of them, myself included, a lot of folks had them winning in round one. Oh, no, I didn't have them winning in round one. I had Memphis. I think originally I had Florida Atlantic, and then I did that thing where you let your brackets sit for a day, and then you go back to it and make a million changes you should never have made. But a lot of folks had them upsetting Memphis, a mild upset in round one. I don't know that anybody thought they were going to go on this kind of run, but it all culminated with that victory over Kansas State. Kansas State had a drought late, which is always the thing in college basketball. The difference between winning and losing at this level is one team always seems to go on a four- or five-minute drought at a horrible time, and you always get that graphic that comes up that says Kansas State hasn't scored in six minutes and 19 seconds and 20 seconds and 21 seconds. And if you're a fan of that team or you have money on that team, it just kills you to see that graphic. That's what happened. And Florida Atlantic hopped into the driver's seat. They win by three. UConn blew the doors off of Gonzaga. I did not see that coming. This is a UConn team that Marquette beat twice in three attempts this year, including in the Big East tournament. But UConn was a number one team in the top 25 early in the year. Then they fell off from that. It seems like they're way, way, way back. They're blowing teams out. When you look at the Final Four, it's going to be tough for a team to knock off UConn the way that they're playing. And then on Sunday, San Diego State, who I had out in the first round, and Creighton, that was a rock fight, tied at 56 late, and then you had the foul call. That stirred up a lot of angry college basketball fans on Twitter. And Charles Barkley got off on it, too, in the postgame, talking about that foul call late. That game was tied at 56. Final possession. San Diego State had the basketball. That guard turns the corner, had a look in the lane, misfired. But as he misfired, they blow the whistle as time is expiring. They call a foul. And on the replay, it was a foul. I mean, it's a foul. If you show that play, if you got 20 referees, high school, college, NBA, whatever, and you put them in a room and you just played that play and you gave them no context, don't tell them this is an Elite Eight game, don't tell them the way the game has been officiated prior to that, don't tell them it's the final possession of the game in a tie game. If you just play that play for 20 officials, 20 of them will say that's a foul. The Creighton guard had his hand on his hip, and he was beaten. And typically, officials will give you the advantage as the offensive player almost every time, really. But especially if you've beaten your guy, which that San Diego State guard did. He got around him, and then that Creighton defender put his hand on his hip. Did he touch his wrist or touch his arm? No, but his hand is on his hip, and that way you can alter his shooting stance as he's letting the basketball go. It's a foul. That is not a question. The question is more in the subjective of, do you call it in that time? You know what I mean? Do you call it given the way the game has been called prior to that? That was the biggest argument I saw against making a call in that moment because it was a physical game. It was a rock fight. It was 56-56. 
and the officials allowed both sides, but specifically San Diego State, whose hallmark is defense, they allowed them to play a physical brand of basketball the entire game. You could certainly make the case that given the way the game had gone and given that that type of contact really hadn't been called all day, that you shouldn't call it in that moment. And then the cherry on top is, do you call it to determine a game? Is it egregious enough to call it in a moment where that could decide the game? And it did. There was almost some Rasheed Wallace ball don't lie. There was almost some poetic justice if you didn't like the foul call because that San Diego State guard missed the first free throw. I thought, oh, my God, if he misses both of these, then it's a message from the heavens. <laughs> that shouldn't have been called. But he hits the second. Creighton can't get a shot off at the end, and that ends up being the difference in a one-point San Diego State win. It's tough. I mean, it's tough. It's a foul. It is definitely a foul. But do you call it at the end of a game with the, with the final four on the line and with the way the game had been officiated or litigated before that, do you call it in that moment? It's tough. You know what it is? I always equate these kind of calls to speeding. If I pass a state trooper on I-43 and it's 70 miles an hour, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, if I pass them at 72 miles an hour, there's a, a pretty good chance 99.9% of the time they are not going to pull me over. But they could, and the argument would be you are going 72, the speed limit is 70. The higher you go, the more egregious you go, the bigger the chance is that you will get pulled over. 75, 80, certainly when you get above 10 miles over the speed limit, your chances of getting pulled over go up. But you could get pulled over at 71 or 72, and by the letter of the law, you would be breaking the law, and you would be subject to whatever citation or warning you would get. That's what I would equate this to. This official, these officials allowed 80-mile-per-hour traffic throughout the entirety of the game and then called a foul on a 72-mile-per-hour violation. Does that make sense, or is that too much? Does that, did I wrap your brain in a pretzel? They allowed speeding the whole game. People were going 80, 85 the whole game, no problem. And then a foul was called, and somebody got pulled over going 72 and a 70 at the end of that game. Again, it's a foul. It's breaking the law. Two miles over the speed limit. But in that moment, I don't know. San Diego State does move on, though. They have been fun to watch defensively. They remind me a little bit of the Shaka Smart VCU team with their length inside and just rejecting shots left and right. That was VCU's year was the was Bucks' great Larry Sanders. He was the middleman on those defenses. But that defense, that San Diego State defense, reminds me of that Shaka Smart VCU defense a bit. And then Miami, Texas was great, too. And again, similar to Kansas State, Texas was up and then just went cold at the wrong moment and had a drought. Miami took the lead, didn't look back as they win 88-81. Jim Laranega, feel good for him. He got George Mason to the Final Four, whatever year that was, 2006 or 2005, as an 11 seed. And now he's back in the final four. So you've got two five seeds, San Diego State and Miami. You've got the nine seed in Florida Atlantic and the four seed in UConn. How do they match up? I don't even know what side of the bracket everybody's on. Florida Atlantic takes on San Diego State. God, you'd love to see Florida Atlantic win a national title. Why not? Any one of these teams, I guess UConn would be the one that has won titles and doesn't seem inconceivable. When's the last time Miami basketball won a title? I don't even know. But Florida Atlantic would be the biggest shocker. Florida Atlantic and San Diego State at 5.09 on Saturday. The boys are getting together for a Final Four Saturday. The San Diego State, what are they even, the Aztecs? They are two-point favorites in that game. And then Miami-UConn, UConn's a six-point favorite. That sounds about right, the way they've been mopping people so far in the tournament. 
But that Final Four is coming up on Saturday. It's just wild to me how much it changes year to year, where last year you could not have gotten a more traditional Final Four. And then this year, it's just chaos. The four teams you would never have expected. Nobody has this, right? I haven't read anything where any random bracket from a from some kid that goes to college in Western Michigan or something. There's always those stories every year of some kid that got it right and got the Final Four exactly right, even with it being that random. I don't even think that happened with these four. Who could have ever predicted these four? But that's the beauty of the tournament. And yes, the Badgers do play. Who do they play? They play North Texas. Hold on. Let me get the time right. They're the first, I believe, of the two games in Vegas on Tuesday, which is beautiful because we can all get to bed at a reasonable hour if you're still watching the games. Yeah, there's 6 o'clock. North Texas, Wisconsin. How about this Final Four? North Texas, Wisconsin, Utah Valley. Where the hell does Utah Valley even play? And UAB. They play in the – they won the WAC, Utah Valley. Who else is in this conference? Sam Houston. Oh, Grand Canyon. Oh, okay. So Grand Canyon must have won because they played in the tournament. They must have won the conference tournament. Oh, Stone Cold Stephen F. Austin is in this conference. This conference. What is this? Utah Valley, Sam Houston, Grand Canyon, Seattle U, Stephen F. Austin, Tarleton. That sounds like a made-up school. California Baptist. ITT Tech. No, ITT Tech's not in that. Abilene Christian, Utah Tech, New Mexico State. Wild. But Utah Valley and UAB. Now that's a final four. Six o'clock for the Badgers of North Texas. As I said on Friday's podcast, these two teams, North Texas actually plays at a slower pace. Does that seem possible to you? In in the words of Doc Brown, inconceivable. That's his catchphrase, right? But is that it? Anyway, they play at a slower pace and score fewer points than the Badgers. What is the over-under on this game? Hold on. (laughs) The over-under is 115.5. That is sub-60 points on each side. Man. And I bet it goes under 115.5. You never bet the under because there's just no fun in betting the under. It's Life's too short to bet the under. The over is always way more fun because when you bet the over on total points, you're rooting for everybody. Every possession is a win if they put points on the board. I may have to bet the under for maybe the first time or second time in my life on in college basketball, 115.5. And then Utah Valley and UAB play at 8.30 that night. Then do we know when is it the next night? Wednesday, Thursday? Oh, Thursday would be the title game. Thursday would be 8.30 if Wisconsin is to move on. All right, Bucks basketball, they did what I was kind of hoping. I mean, you wish they would have gotten both, and the fact that they had the lead at half in Denver and the way they played in that first half where it looked like they were really locked in, you would have obviously preferred to have both. But as we said on Friday's pod, when you broke those two down, you felt like you had to get the Utah game, especially with Laurie Markinen not playing and Jordan Clarkson not playing. Utah didn't play anybody. They're a game under 500, two games under 500 going into that matchup on Friday, but not playing any of their major players. The Bucks were playing almost everybody outside of Middleton. You had to get that one because if you lose that one, then you have a ton of pressure to win Denver. You had to get the split in those two games, even though you wanted both. They absolutely dust Utah. I don't even know who Utah's coach is anymore, but he had a laugh-out-loud funny comment in the post game. See if we can maybe edit it in here and post. Hold on, I'll give myself a little break. Oh, man. Well, we almost had him. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know where to start. There's the break, John, if you find it. Otherwise, that's just a break. But he sat down at the end of his or the beginning of his postgame presser 
took a deep breath, said, oh, and then he said, boy, we almost had him. <laughs> and the crowd and the press corps went laughing, went crazy. Yeah, we just about had him. They take care of Utah, 144-116. to 116. Patty Connaughton had a big game. He has been struggling from distance. I'm not sure where he would rank right now in playoff rotation. He has not had all that good of a year. And he was so critically important on that title team two years ago where he was probably the sixth most important player on that team, on a title-winning team. But he's had a rough run this year. He's had a lot of injuries, but he was 6 of 10 from beyond the arc in that game. And then they go to Denver, and they come out against the Nuggets, who had had three days of rest. Denver had not played since Wednesday. They're the number one team in the Western Conference. They had three days off, and they're playing at home. The Bucks are flying in at 2 a.m. off of a back-to-back. Just one of those NBA scheduling quirks, not an excuse, an explanation. There's always a difference between an excuse and an explanation. When you try to explain something, a lot of people say no excuses play like a champion, which I tend to agree with, but I believe there is a difference between an excuse and an explanation. Denver is one of the best teams in the league. They have been sitting at home since Wednesday. The Bucks played Friday night and got five hours of sleep and then had to play at altitude at a mile high, which impacts everybody. They had to play at altitude the second half of a back-to-back. They had the lead at half by three. Giannis was cooking. And then things just went cold in the second half. And the officiating played a role, too. I'm not saying the officials cost the Bucks the game on Saturday. It got a little weird, though. A lot of technicals. They seemed to have a short temper, the officials did, for any nonsense that the Bucks had where they were arguing or talking trash to Jokic or whatever. They were teeing up everybody. There were, the cops were involved at one point, legitimately. There was a police presence in Denver after a Giannis Tech. It got kind of weird. But the bottom line is the Bucks just ran out of gas in the second half. They stopped making shots. Denver continued on, and they end up with a 129-106 to win at home. But when you compare the two schedules, you always kind of felt like it was going to be a tough game to win given those circumstances. And those are not circumstances you'll obviously see in the playoffs. There were a lot of Bucks fans freaking out about the way that second half went, but that's just not something that's going to happen in a playoff matchup. Each team will rest an equal amount of days for the most part when you go into the playoffs. I guess you could say if one series lasted longer than another, you might be playing with only one day off, but you're never going to have that scenario in the playoffs, which is why I'm not overly concerned about it. Now, the Celtics did win. The Celtics, as we said on Friday, have a fairly soft schedule the rest of the way. They beat the Spurs just the way the Bucks beat the Spurs on Wednesday last week. They beat the Spurs down on Sunday night in Boston, which means it does shave a game. The Celtics are now a game and a half back of the one spot in the Eastern Conference. But the more important thing is two back in the loss column. But it was three back in the loss column going into the weekend. Now, like we talked about on Friday, the Bucs have given themselves a cushion. And with the Bucs schedule, with that back-to-back, the second game being in Denver, they've got the matchup with Boston this week and Philly this week. They've got a home matchup with Memphis on Friday, April 7th. That's the last weekend of the regular season. That's not going to be easy. It is at home. But when you compare the two schedules, the Celtics have the softer of the two schedules. Not by a lot, but they do. So you need that cushion. You're likely going to need that cushion. And they lost a game off of that cushion. Now you really start a tough week. And it starts tonight in Detroit. You cannot lose to this Pistons team. Sounds like Jay Crowder is going to play. Sounds like just about everyone is a go for tonight. How many wins does Detroit even have? 18? 16. (laughs) Detroit is 16 and 58 on the year. You absolutely unequivocally cannot lose this game tonight. And you really can't lose in Indiana on Wednesday. They've got two road games at Detroit tonight at Indiana on Wednesday. Then again on a back-to-back the next Thursday, the next night, they play at home against Boston. Boston does not have a back-to-back. Boston will be playing 
What is their schedule? They are at Washington on Tuesday and then at Milwaukee on Thursday. Again, just based on the way the schedule breaks, and that just that's just the way the cookie crumbles, as they say. The Bucks will be playing on a back-to-back, and Boston will have that extra day of rest. You must win in Detroit tonight. You must win Indiana on Wednesday. And then you give yourself, you still have that two-game loss column cushion when you meet up with the Celtics at Fiserv on Thursday. My assumption is that both of those teams are going to be full-on go. If you're reasonably healthy, you will be playing, whether it's the Celtics or the Bucks for that showdown on TNT. That's the one you had marked on the calendar for at least a month or more, that that could determine the one seed. If the matchup on Thursday starts with the Bucks with two games up in the loss column, which I'm, we're hoping it will be, the Bucks could technically lose that game, still have a one-game lead, and still, if they play their cards right, could still end up getting that one seed even with the loss. But there's so much on the line in that game. Boston and Milwaukee each have a win against each other. This will determine the season series. If they end up tied at the end of the regular season, the winner of Thursday's game is going to have that tiebreaker. And then right after the Boston matchup, a couple of days off, but on Sunday, the Sixers are in Fiserv, a 7 o'clock tip time primetime on Sunday night. And as we talked about, if the Bucks win that, that would split the four-game season series with Philadelphia. Philadelphia's lost a couple of games in a row. They're four games back now of the one seed with only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games left. It feels like they're pretty much out of the running. The Celtics do have a matchup with Philadelphia where we are probably going to be Sixers fans in that matchup. That is their first game or second game after... I think that's really the only game. When you look at Boston's schedule, hold on here. At Washington, at Milwaukee, at home against Utah. Yeah, then they're in Philly on Tuesday, next Tuesday, April 4th. They've got back-to-back home games against Toronto, and they end the year at home against Atlanta. Pretty much all winnable games, except for maybe that game in Philly. Yeah, we're likely to be rooting for the Sixers in that matchup in Philly against the Celtics on Tuesday, April 4th, next Tuesday. But if the Bucks take care of business against the Pistons and Pacers, and then they beat the Celtics on Thursday that's pretty much the one seed. You'd be back to a three-game lead in the loss column with, what, six games left? There's no way they'd blow that at that point, and this is kind of the game we all thought it was heading towards. This was the buildup that we were expecting, and it's going to have the implications we were expecting as well on Thursday, but you just cannot rest yourself here on Monday or Wednesday. It sounds like everybody's playing tonight. Hopefully, hopefully. Now, I could see a world where Bud would say, okay, We've got this massive Boston game on Thursday. I could see a world where maybe some players rest on Wednesday, but you just, it feels like at this point you can't mess around. If you want the one seed, and it seems like they do, and they should, if you want that one seed, you've got to go into every game for the rest of the regular season like it's a must win game until you have that one seed solidified. I think their magic number is seven. Any combo of seven wins or losses by the Celtics would get you that one seed. I think you've got to go full throttle. But I could see a world where Wednesday they may rest some guys to make sure everybody's full on and ready for the Thursday matchup with the Celtics. They may err on that game being bigger. And if we lose Wednesday, so be it. We'll rest our guys, hedging that we can win on Thursday, and then we're right back to where we were with that two-game loss column lead. But it's a massive week. This is a good appetizer for the playoffs. We're finally getting to a point with Bucks basketball where the arduous, long marathon regular season is going to be over, and we're going to be getting into high-intensity, resting heart rate of 140, live-or-die games. And those are not that far off. But it kind of gives you a little appetizer this week, starting tonight in Detroit. Got to get it tonight. All right, and then we'll wrap up on baseball. We start on baseball, we'll end on baseball. 
Brewers are wrapping up spring training. We got a home run from Yelly yesterday. Third home run of spring training. Could he? Maybe? Should he? Could he? Could we see the Yelly of 2018, 2019? I'm not sure I'm holding out hope for that anymore. Just be a little more normal. I'll take the Yelly from Miami. I will take Miami Yelly. Miami Yelly hit 285 and hit 18 to 20 home runs, stole 20 bags, had a war over four or close to five most years he was there. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'm not sure I'm holding out hope for 2018, 2019 Yelly anymore, but if you give me Miami Yelly hitting 285 or hitting 280 with 20 bombs and 20 stolen bases and plays serviceable enough defense, I will live and die with that. But he did hit his third spring training home run. That's not a bad number. He hasn't had a ton of at-bats, so three home runs in the limited at-bats, not terrible. As the Brewers ended their game yesterday with a tie against the Mariners. So a couple of spring training games left and then off to Wrigley. And you know Wrigley's just going to be a delight. How The Cubs should not be allowed to play at home until May. <laughs> they should be forced to go on a four- or five-game road trip to begin the year. It is so miserable at Wrigley this time of year. And every year it feels like the Brewers are there in the first week or two, and it's going to be 45 degrees and windy and a little rainy and maybe a little sleety, and you're going to have the guys with the face masks on and the earmuffs on under their baseball hat and the long sleeves. It's just going to be miserable. It always is. And it used to be that way with County Stadium back in the day. I get it. That used to be a hallmark of Milwaukee baseball as well. Well, you can already see it playing out that way on Thursday. I did look at the forecast. They're going Thursday, Saturday, Sunday with a Friday buffer day. Thursday looks 45, cloudy and windy. Friday is going to be 60 degrees, but rain all day, but they're not playing that day anyway. And then right back to the 40s on Saturday and Sunday. This is going to be one of those kind of early season Wrigley matchups. Now, when you forecast the year for the Brewers... Here are the futures bets. I teased this a bit on Friday's podcast. Where do you stand on these? Brewers' season win total is set at 85 and a half. How many did they win last year? I don't even remember. With the way that season ended, I'd like to forget the way everything went down post-trade deadline for the Brewers in 2022. I think they got 86 wins last year. Let's go back to 2022, not spring training, second half. Here we go. Anybody can be prepared for the podcast. Not everybody can just go on the fly here. Yeah, they won exactly 86 games last year, and that was with a major collapse at the end of the year. So if they finish this year the way they finished last year, at least record-wise, 86 and 76, that would pay. Of course I'm going over. How could I ever bet on this team to go under? I bet the over every year, and more often than not, they actually do hit the over. I'll never forget our buddy Matt, who is our afternoon guy in B93, in the first year with Stearns and Council together, 2016, they had an over-under of 68 and a half wins, so they needed 69 wins. Nice. 69 wins to cash that bet. And they must have been sitting at 66 or 65 wins late in the year we went to a game. And we actually made a sign, and I go to a million baseball games, but I've never actually made a sign on one of those Coles signs they have when you can go to AmFam Field, Miller Park. And you can just get those and write on them. I've never done one except that day we did. And I don't know how we didn't get on TV. I guess gambling wasn't as mainstream now or then as it is now where you kind of talk about that on the air, even on the broadcast. But we made a sign that had the up arrow with 68 and a half next to it. And then on the bottom, we just wrote, keep trying and put dollar symbols next to it. And they did hit the over that year. Keep trying. For the love of God, keep trying. I'll go over. I expect it to be tense, though. I'm not, I don't know that I'm going to be sitting like the Bucks' season win total is 54 or was 53 and a half. They have how many right now? 52. 
I don't anticipate sweating that out in the final game of the year. If I do, things have gone horribly wrong for the Bucks down the stretch run. But there's going to be a five or six game comfort cushion there where you know the over has already hit and that bet's going to pay. I don't know if I'm going to be sitting the final week of the year feeling real comfortable at 85 and a half. I hope I should be. If the pitching staff is healthy, when I look back to last year and you really break down what happened last year, clearly the hater trade sent a ripple effect through the locker room that nobody was expecting. But the number one problem to me outside of the offense was the health of the pitching staff. If they have the health in 2022 that they did in 2021 with the pitching staff, with Burns and Woodruff and Peralta and Lauer, and they were all taking the ball every five days, basically. There were no major injuries in 2021, and they won whatever it was, 93 or 94 games. If they would have had that pitching staff health last year, even with the hater trade and even with the ripple effect of that and even with the putrid offense, the putrid swing and miss offense by the end of the year, even with all of that, They're going to make the playoffs if the pitching staff has the same health that they had the year prior in 2021. But there was a lot of stuff going on in 2022. The pitching staff was not healthy. Burns was the only guy that took the ball every five days. The offense was abysmal at times and mediocre at best. And then the hater trade and everything that came after that. You know, the more I talk about last year, it's amazing they won 86 games. It was such a letdown. And the last month of the year had such a bizarre tone to it because of the hater trade and how it clearly affected the locker room. But when you add all that up, the pitching staff injuries to a great starting rotation, trading an all-star closer and shaking up the locker room, an offense that couldn't score runs consistently. How did they win 86 games? Yeah, no, I'm definitely talking myself into the over on 85 and a half this year. With all that stuff going on last year, they won 86. I'll take them. I'm taking them over 85 and a half. It will come down to, though, the health of the pitching staff. If those guys are healthy, Burns and Woodruff and Peralta and Lauer and Wade Miley back now in the mix and however they work in Ashby whenever it is he comes back there was that injury to Adrian Hauser now toward the end of spring training where it looks like he's going to miss some time he was going to be a bullpen arm anyway but if they have that starting rotation reasonably healthy for 75 or 80 percent of the year and even if the offense is just a tick better they should compete for a playoff spot and win 86, 87 games. If the rotation is healthy this year like it was in 2021, that is a 90-win team. Barring catastrophic injury to somebody else, that is a 90-72 and 72 team just with Burns, Woodruff, Peralta, Lauer, Miley, and Devin Williams at the back end of that bullpen. But we'll see if the offense gets any better. You hope it does. It can't get much worse, right? We're hoping that Yelly continues to turn things around in that leadoff spot. We're hoping Jesse Winker has a bounce-back year. We're hoping Brian Anderson can stay healthy and play third base with a fair amount of routine. And then we'll see what the young guys can put in there, too. Bryce Terang's going to be on the mix in the infield. He's a prospect they're high on. Garrett Mitchell seems to be the everyday center fielder. Hopefully he can stay healthy. It does now look like either Sal Fralick or Joey Weimer, another one of those outfield prospects, is going to make the team. That might give you some pop. And the shift not being around, I do think, is going to help, too. I believe that that is going to give Yelly about a 10-point batting average boost, and it'll give Rowdy Telez probably about a 10-point batting average boost, just not hitting into that shift. Pitch clock, we'll see what kind of impact that is. Maybe that does help the offense. I guess we're going to have to get through the entire year to sort of know what impact that's going to have on every team in Major League Baseball. We know the games will be shorter which is a good thing, something they had to do. I know the traditionalists and myself, I consider myself a traditionalist. I'm German. 
but something had to happen. They had to reduce the game time. How that will impact pitching numbers and hitting numbers this year without the shift, we won't know until the end of the year. But you're hoping for at least a little bit of a tick up offensively. If they can get that and get the starting rotation health more towards what they had two years ago, this should be an 86-win team to hit the over, and it should be a playoff team. And Vegas has them even money to make the playoffs, which means Vegas does see them as a playoff team. They're minus 110 to not make the playoffs, minus 110 to make the playoffs. Kind of a one-to-one shot there. I'll bet on them to make the playoffs, too. A couple of other futures bets. They are plus 175 to win the division, which puts them at the second-best odds. Vegas has the Cardinals as the division favorites at minus 120. Brewers are number two at plus 175. I don't know how I feel about that. How do you feel about that? They are plus 2,000 to win the NL pennant. That is the seventh best odds to win the pennant. Kind of puts them right on the top half of the bottom half, if that makes sense. How many teams? There's 15 teams, right? Am I wrong about that? Hold on. Yes. That puts them sort of right in the middle of the pack at plus 2,000. MVP odds, I was surprised to see this. Christian Yelich is plus 8,000 to win the MVP, which he's not going to win. But Willie Adamas, I thought Willie Adamas would be the Brewer player that has the best odds to win the MVP. He's actually worse than Yelly. Yelly's plus 8,000. Adamas is plus 10,000. I may put 100 bucks on that. <laughs> you know, why not? 200 bucks, maybe 200 bucks to win $20,000. I don't know. He hits for power. He's a great defender. If he can get that average back up and they are a 90-win playoff team, he'll be in the mix. Plus 10,000? I'm taking it. The Cy Young, Burns has the second-best odds to win his second Cy Young at plus 550. Sandy Alcantara, who won it last year, has the best odds. I like this value, though. Brandon Woodruff is plus 1,900 to win the Cy Young. That is the 12th-best odds. Those are your Brewers' futures, but futures' futures. Futures' futures. But I am going to take the Brewers over like I do every year at 85 and a half. So they need to hit 86 to win that. And then I will also take them to make the playoffs playing one to one. I'll throw a tickler on Adamas to win the MVP. Why not? Plus 10,000. And then I'll throw a little money on him to win the division at plus 175. But you really feel like you're only an injury away. The Brewers are healthy and then Paul Goldschmidt goes down for a little while or Aaron Allen goes down for a little while. I don't know if there's that big of a difference between the Brewers and Cardinals. One injury could swing it one way or the other. And the other thing to keep in mind for the Brewers, too, offensively, just to circle back to that real quick, William Contreras. One of the biggest moves of the offseason. The Brewers have not made a lot of offseason moves, but that trade was huge, and you now have what you're hoping to be a cornerstone player at a cornerstone position with that acquisition of William Contreras, the all-star last year, now your young catcher of the present and the future for the Brewers. So we'll go over, make the playoffs, win the division, Adamus MVP, and I'm going to sprinkle a little on Woodruff to win the Cy Young. Burns, there's not a ton of value there, but Woody, there's a little value there, plus 1,900. It all starts on Thursday. Corbin Burns will take the hill at Wrigley, game one of 162. We'll come back on Friday recapping that game. We'll also be back on Friday right after the Celtics-Bucks showdown on TNT. We're going to have a much clearer picture of what the one seed looks like by the time we record the pod on Friday. Have a good work week. We'll chat with you then.